once we have a few more people in here. We're going to begin tonight um, just with a word of prayer as we get ready to look into Lesson 15 of Unit 2 in our Answers in Genesis curriculum. And this lesson is titled, God Creates Adam and Eve. The biblical account of creation of man is very different from the evolutionary view. And that is the, the primary subject we've been discussing throughout this curriculum is that the biblical account of creation of man is different from the evolutionary uh, view. And now that uh, we have some of you all in tonight, I do want to give a couple of um, just brief announcements as we begin to uh, get into the message tonight. Uh, the first thing I wanted to mention is that next Wednesday we will be having service. Um, I know school is out on spring break. We're still going to be meeting to go on and do lesson 16 next Wednesday. So we'll be streaming our, our kids' classes. We'll all be in session um, as well. So if you are in town next week, I encourage you to come and uh, be part of, of next week's meeting as we begin to discuss dinosaurs and dragons. I think it's going to be a really exciting lesson um, as we begin to talk about you know what what were dinosaurs where did they come from why do we have fossils and you know stories about dragons what what could those possibly be? How, how do those come into a relationship with the Word of God? Does the Word have anything to say about dinosaurs and dragons? Well, next week, if you come, you're going to see that it absolutely does. It has answers for us about questions even like dinosaurs and dragons. And so I encourage you all to come next week. Bring your kids. Um, invite somebody for next week's service. I think it's just going to be, um, you know, it's kind of a big question. Dinosaurs, dragons, these, these things that we hear about but none of us have ever seen, um, you you know, what does the Bible say about it? I, I'm very interested, and I'm sure many of you are also interested um, to get into that lesson next week. And so I just encourage you, if you know somebody that you think um, that would be good for, if you know somebody that would be interested, invite them to our service. Um, if you know kids that would have questions and be intrigued, invite them to our kids' service. Um, this is, I, I believe this is even a great way to interest and engage people in the gospel of, of Jesus. And um, so I just encourage you with that. Come next week, invite some someone to service as we talk about dinosaurs and dragons. Um, but tonight, as I mentioned, we're getting into the creation of, of Adam and Eve. Um, now, if you were with us last week, we talked about days five and day six of creation um, in which the animals and mankind were created. Uh, we, we talked about how God made everything and how he made mankind as a sort of crowning achievement, uh, a final favorable creation um, in his own image, that we were made differently from the rest of the creation, uh, different from the earth and the waters, different from the other animals and the insects and the birds and all the other stuff that was created. We were made different and we were made in the image of God, one of the things that differentiates us. Um, we also looked last week at how, um, as, as we look in the Word, we see that we are His favored creation. We were His last creation. We were the creation created in His own image. We were the creation, and we're going to see tonight again, um, that we received His very Spirit. We have a quality about us being a spirit being that is different than any other creation because nothing else that He created uh, was given. The very Spirit, like He has Spirit. Um, and so tonight, our lesson focus, to summarize what we're going to talk about, is chapter 2 of Genesis. Now, we've spent the last many lessons um, in our first unit getting prepared and understanding that the Word of God is the foundation that we build on. We've spent most of the lessons in this unit talking about Genesis 1, the week of creation. And now we're moving on to Genesis 2. Um, verses 4 through 25. I have them written in your scripture sheet and we'll also have them up here tonight. 
And in this lesson, as we look at chapter 2, we're going to see a, a detailed account, kind of a, a, a more emphasized, more descriptive account of what we already have seen in Genesis 1. Um, the Bible and its, its account of the creation of man is different from an evolutionary view. We're going to discuss that a little bit in the apologetic section. And we're going to talk about as well marriage and how God designed marriage and his design for it is one man and one woman. These are the kinds of questions and answers we're going to see in tonight's study of Genesis 2. Are you ready for that this evening? All right, well, let's begin first with our memory verse. If you would, just say this with me. And, and as we read this, um, what, we're, what we're gaining from this and, and confessing even as we read this is that God really did create the world and put us in it as his crown and achievement. The world we could almost say is, is the, the rest of the picture for us as his centerpiece in creation. That he created the world um, and gave us dominion over it. Would you read this with me tonight? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And as we say that, it just it so encourages me to our place in God's creation as, as his favorite creation. Do you gain that as you read this tonight? I think it emphasizes this point that we are different than the rest of creation. And that's kind of the reason that tonight we're, we're going to have a whole lesson just about Adam and Eve and about mankind being created because, well... God gave us some specific detail about our history as his creation. And so now this is our focus tonight. We are going to answer, as I said, this question, how does evolution undermine the doctrine of marriage? See, this is one of the reasons it's important to really take what the word says in Genesis as the truth and take it as our standard for belief, because there are doctrines such as marriage, which we'll see tonight, that are set out right from the beginning in Genesis. And if we throw Genesis out and say, well, it was just an allegory, it was just a, a, a metaphor or an illustration for creation, well, then we undermine the doctrines that are set forth in Genesis. And so because we value God's word completely, um, we will see tonight how evolution and that concept, that theory, um, is really a, a work trying to undermine this doctrine of marriage. And we We'll talk some more about that as we go on tonight. Let's read. We're going to begin just by going through um, this large section of Scripture, Genesis 2, 4 through 25. And as we read through this, we may stop at points and discuss certain th things, and then we'll go back through and pull out a, a, few key, um, a few key points. Genesis 2, 4 through 6. You can follow along in your notes or on the screen. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> 
A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Fishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The Bedlam and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gehon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." And what we see in Genesis 2, uh, 4 through 25, is a detailed account of what we read last week in the creation of man and the animals in day 6. So a couple of points to this large section of scripture. Number one, I wanted to address that this too, we, we talked a couple weeks ago about how in Genesis 1 there are people that would say this is just kind of a, an illustration or a metaphor, uh, you know, an allegory for what really happened. It's just you know, a, a way to explain it away. No, we believe that this is not, not colorful language trying to you know, poetically describe what happened, but it is in fact a narrative, a historical record of what happened. That it, that it is written more like a history book than a poetry book is kind of the point we're getting at here. And we believe the same thing with Genesis 2. This isn't illustrative language to, to you know, just poetically describe what happened. This is a, a literal account of what God did. It is a historical um, teaching, a historical record of what happened on day six of creation when animals and mankind were created. And so because we believe that it is historical, um, we can also believe then that as this goes on and describes what occurred in, in these days of creation, um, it's just a greater description. You know, I, I thought this was crazy, and I hadn't actually heard this before, but there are people who say that the Bible discredits itself because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are different accounts, that they contradict one another. I had never even heard that that you know, con, contrast or, or that argument before against the Bible. I, I mean, I've never even thought that. I've always read Genesis 1 and then read Genesis 2, and I thought, okay, well, that explains a lot. You know, in Genesis 1, we kind of get the play, the, the big picture. You know, this happened on this day, this happened on this day, this happened on this day. It's like a summary. 
But then we get to Genesis 2, and it's like it, it ex, ex, well, I don't know if exposes, expounds is probably the right word. It goes on, and it just it lets out you know, greater detail of everything that was going on. Thank you for the help with that. It expounds on the first, on the, on the first uh, chapter of Genesis. And so the point I, I want to make with this is that Genesis 2 is not a separate or conflicting account of the word than Genesis 1. All it does is build upon what Genesis 1 has already told us. It goes into greater detail. And I believe the, the purpose of Genesis 2 is because God wants us to know in greater detail how we were created. You know, there are, are details about our creation we're given in two that we weren't given in one, and I'm grateful for that. And, and to our question that we posed earlier about evolution and if that contrasts with, with marriage, Genesis 2 gives us a picture of marriage that we wouldn't have if all we were left with was the summary. So aren't you glad that we have a good God who gives us great detail about the whole history and whole process of our creation? So I am too. Um, so as I was saying, there, there are people who would try to discredit, and here are a couple of the, um, I don't know if arguments are the right word, but the things they would uh, try to counteract the word with. One is that they would say um, animals were created first in, in Genesis 1. It was animals, and then he created mankind. And if we read chapter 2, uh, we'd have to go back a few verses here, um, right here it says that out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast. And, and here uh, before that it said I created man. And so the argument would be that in Genesis 1, God created animals, then man. And then they say, well, in, in chapter 2, we see mankind first, and then he goes on and talks about animals afterwards. So didn't the Bible get it wrong? And isn't that just like the enemy to try to twist what God said, and make it into something that would cause doubt. Well, if we go back and read this in chapter 2, what we are going to see here is that God created Adam after the animals, and he alludes to that after he said here in Genesis 2 about how he had created man, and actually it's in 13 and 15. He had created man. Um, he says, I need to make him a helper. And when we read 19, this is where it references the beasts of the ground and, and the creatures. He says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. What people trying to discredit the word would say is that Genesis 2 says he created man and then he created animals afterwards, which is not what Genesis 1 says. But when we read this, you know, as I read now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast. I'm not reading that as, you know, at this point in time, God is creating the beasts, that he's creating the animals after mankind. What I see here is that God is, is calling out a work that he had already done. He's saying, I've already created these animals, all these beasts, these birds, and I'm going to bring them to man and whatever he calls them, you know, that's what they're going to be. And so there's this long parade of all of these creatures, these animals coming through and, and, you know, Adam's trying to find his helper and none of these animals are it because none of them are created like him. None of them are a like kind to, to his creation. None of them have that spirit of God in them like he has the spirit of God. And, and we, we see that too as we read about how God formed him out of the earth and then breathed life into him. See, when we read this account, what we need to know is that Genesis 1 is accurate and Genesis 2 is accurate. 
They don't contradict and they don't discredit each other. Genesis 2 is, is the descriptive. And he's talking about man. And he's talking about how he created man. And I think as I read Genesis 2, it's all really in reference, um, not even so much to the creation of the world, but to my place in it. That's what I see as I read Genesis 2, is God is giving me uh, detailed instruction and description about what my, my place as mankind is in in this world, because that's what he's describing here to Adam. He's talking about how I created you, and, and he talks in greater detail about how I breathed my, my life into you, and I've given you dominion, and I'm bringing you a helper, and I'm setting you up in this world that I've created so that you can fulfill your purpose. And so as I read Genesis 2, it makes sense to me that he would be talking about man not focusing on, on this is you know the exact way I created the animals and then I did you. It's I'm talking about your place, Adam. And so right here in 19, I'm referencing something I've already done and how you and that creation fit together. See, it's, it's not a play-by-play. -play. It's, it's not the summary like we talked about in Genesis 1. It's, it's an uh, expounding on of what he's already written and what he had already done. And so um, as we read that, I, just, I want everybody to have a firm grasp of that. I don't know if you'll ever encounter this argument of you know Genesis 1 and 2 contradict, but I want you to be prepared because a big part of this study is apologetics and knowing how to give a defense for what we believe. Well, that's, that's the way that... I would defend that. I would say the wording doesn't say he created them there. It just says I had already created these beasts and now I'm bringing them before you, Adam. So then the second um, kind of, of thing that people will bring up to try to discredit the word here in Genesis 2, they would try to say that there's no way Adam could have named all the animals in just one day. And you know, at first glance, I can kind of see that. I, I could kind of understand where somebody could be coming from with that. Like, you know, you look around the world today, and I, I went and I did the research today to see how many animals there are. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but there's about 1.25 million species of animals. And, you know, I take that number, 1.25 million species of animals, and I think, yeah, that'd be tough to do in one day. I mean, that, that would be challenging. I mean, even if Adam was just like pushing them through like rapid pace, like cow, horse, donkey, I mean, just going. <laughs> That would still, I mean, my mouth would get worn out. I'd have cotton mouth or something. I don't know. There's no way one point, I agree, 1.25 million creatures in one day couldn't happen. And so people will try to use that as a statement to either say, well, Genesis 2 can't be a real historical account, or maybe they'll use it to, to define, you know, or, or to support a gap theory and say, well, this must have been a period of millions of years or all this time where Adam discovered all these creatures and then he named them all. You know, they, they want to, again, discredit the authority of the word by doing something like this. Well, when we think about it in kind of a different way and, and we don't just assume a few things, but instead we, we look to see how it fits into the word, I think what we'll find is that Adam absolutely could have named all the creation, all the, all the animals in this day. So let me, let me give you a few points, which if we don't just assume, but we take our understanding from the word, we're going to see an insight here. Um, the first thing is that 1.25 million species of animals, that would mean that every single living creature was being named. That's not what the word says, though. What the word says is that he named the cattle, the birds, and the beasts. So that, that means none of the creeping things and none of the sea life are included in what was named on that first day. 
And that, that is a serious change to the number of creation that Adam would have had to name because about one million of the species that we know, and this is according to scientific research that we understand today, about one million species of, of animals are insects. So if we take the creeping things out, it cuts that number down by a factor of five, which is still a lot. I mean, a quarter million, 250,000, that's still a lot of animals to name. But if we take the insects out and we take all of the sea life out, that's a pretty drastic number of, of creation that now Adam isn't having to name in this 24-hour period of time. One of the things we talked about when we were discussing kinds a number of weeks back was that um, a kind is, is, is a, a grouping of animals of, you know, like kind. Cats are a kind. Now, you might have different kinds of cats. You might have different kinds of dogs, horses, cows. I mean, there are different variations, but one overarching kind. Now, we talked that week about how kinds, um, we even recognize those in our modern science. We use the classification system, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And what I found in, in researching this is that uh, a, God's description of a kind would likely fall between the genus and the family um, or classification. And there are about 110,000 genuses, fam, or I'm sorry, it'd be between families and orders, okay? And so I, I kind of walked this number back to see where we would land on species. Because I, I just, like, I wanted to know, is, is this... I mean, I know it's true because it's the word, but like, how did Adam name all these creatures and how, how many creatures did he have to name is, is kind of the question I wanted to, to find an answer to. And so just based on what we know today, um, there are about 110,000 species of genuses. Um, there are about 6,000 families and there are only about 425 orders of animal life. Now, that's including everything. I mean, that's sea creatures and all the insects like everything. And so if we took the 425 number and we said, you know, some portion of that number is what he had to count, taking out all the sea and all the insects, I mean, we're probably landing in the 50 to 100 range. And I can believe that. You know what I mean? And even going on and let's say it was the family number, the 6,000. Well, if we take, maybe we'll just, we'll, we'll be conservative and say, let's take half of those out as insects. And maybe let's take a quarter out as sea life based on what we know today that out of the 1.25 million, a million are insects, that brings the number down to 1,500 species. And you know what? I can believe that Adam named 100 species in an hour in a 15-hour in a day. That seems reasonable to me, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. And so, you know, if we just take this argument at face value, you know, oh, well, Adam, he could not have named all these species in 24 hours. But we don't just take it at that face value, but we think in terms of what the word has says, that it was the cattle, it was the beasts, and it was the birds. And he didn't name every single species, but he named things according to kind. Well, now I believe it. Now, and I believed it before, but now I, I, can, I can support my belief. I can give a defense for what I believe. You know, if we think in, in these terms, it becomes easy to believe what the word says. And I think even, even as we have these kinds of conversations with people, I think it makes it easy for other people to believe what the Word says. I, I think it, it takes something that seems impossible and it makes it understandable when we can think about it you know, kind of in this really logical way. God's a logical God. He does things in, in a way that makes sense. 
And I think we see that even with this, that it made sense in Genesis 2. And so going on, some of the other things um, that are, we see in Genesis 2, things that are important to this passage of Scripture, um, we see the Garden of Eden. And what it says about the garden, I'm just going to summarize and, and we could go back through and pick out the particular verses. In verse 8 it says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man who he had formed. And so the man had already been formed at that point. Uh, obviously we know that plant life would have been formed in an earlier day. And God created the garden. He did it by planting it, is what it says. He planted a garden. He put the trees in it. He provided water by a mist. You know, rain had not fallen up to that point. But God was providing the natural things needed for that life by bringing a mist up out of the ground so that it could live. And at this point, what we see here in verse 8 as he brings Adam into the garden is that he put Adam in the garden alone. So at the very beginning, and, and this is just kind of a play-by-play, play, the you know, expounding on what we already read in Genesis 1. God made an, a garden. He planted a garden. He was providing water for it. He put the, put the trees in it, planted the trees, brought them up. And God placed Adam in the garden alone. Now, if we read this, it says, And out of the ground, or, out of the, ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant and, um, to sight and good for food. The tree of life is also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he talks about um, the rivers and the waters. And he says, you know, don't eat this, Adam, down in verse, um, I believe it's in 16 and 17. He says, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he's been placed in the garden. He's been provided for in the garden. I mean, from, from a living standpoint, Adam would have had everything he needed, but then God says, it's not good that you're alone. You know, this, this garden is good. The, the plants are good. You are good. But it's not good that you're all by yourself. And so what he does, knowing the need for Adam to have a helper, is, is what the term used here says, he creates Eve. And so we know this about the Garden of Eden just from what we see in scriptures. I, I just wanted to give you some of the things we know based on the word. Um, it was planted by God. He, he made it. Um, he provided the water needed for that garden by the mist. He placed Adam in it alone. Um, Adam being alone at that time was the only thing that God had called not good. And that's an indication that, well, Adam needed a helper, that we all need people of like kind around us is what I read with that, that we're not supposed to go through life alone or even with, you know, a, a dog or a cow or some other kind of animal because Adam had all those and God said, this isn't good. You need, uh, you need someone with you, someone of a like kind. And so um, he also, we, we would see that God had given Adam a role in the garden, to tend it and keep it. And I'm, I'm looking for the reference in that huge passage of Scripture that we gave. Uh, I promise you it is in there. Let, let's see. Till the ground. Um, well, he talks about it in 5. The Lord God had not caused it on rain to earth, rain to come to earth. There was no man to till the ground, and so there was a necessity for a man to work the ground. That was one of the things he put Adam on earth to do. And so he gives Adam um, even 
jobs. He says, your job is to tend and keep this garden. Um, he says, you know, you are in domain. You are a steward of everything else I've created. I believe that's one of the reasons he brought all those animals for Adam to name is because he said, Adam, you're, you're in charge of this. I made it. I'm the author of it, but you're the person in charge of managing or stewarding it. And so even at the very beginning here, we see the principle of stewardship in our relationship with God at play, that from the very start, God intended for us to be stewards of his creation in the world. And so these are just a few things we see right here at the beginning um, in Genesis. And so then what we get to is um, Adam and Eve, the two of them specifically. That's another main topic we see in Genesis 2 here. Adam and Eve, Adam was made, it says, from the dust of the ground and given the breath of life. And what that tells us is that Adam was different from other creation because he was more than just a physical substance. Adam was more than just a physical substance. Everything else that was created was, was created by a word of the Lord or, or it was brought up out of the ground. Adam was more than just dust of the earth. He was given the breath of life, the very breath of God. And this differentiates him from all of the other creation. We don't get this detailed description of God molding other creation into its very form, into his very image, and then going down and breathing life into that creation. Adam is the only one that we get this description of, and so we see a, a, a difference between him and the other creation. He is set apart, we could say, um, by God and for God. And so this is a difference between Adam and other creation. Um, I'm not sure if it's on the PowerPoint, but we're going to read 1 Corinthians verse 15. It's right here, uh, 47 through 49. It says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As, uh, as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Yes. We are more than just dust of the earth. We, we, are, we are given the man of heaven. Jesus came down to make our spirits alive once again. You know, when we talk about the death that came on Adam and Eve, there, there was obviously the physical death that now they were going to return to dust after corruption came. But there was also the spiritual death that happened immediately, the spiritual separation that happened immediately. And because we're born into a world where we've been separated from God because of sin, well, when we come into the world and our spirit is dead unto God, well, if we were to die, we would go to dust and then our spirit would be dead unto the Lord. But praise God, we have Jesus Christ who makes our spirit alive again. And as this says, uh, we are born, we have born and bear the image of the man of heaven. Not just dust, but spirit as well. And so that is the, the summarized creation of Adam. And then we see Eve, the woman, the one who was brought to be a helper to Adam. The one who, you know, there was no other helper, no other uh, counterpart in his kind. And none of the cows, none of the dogs, none of the cats did the, the job of fulfilling that need for um, a helper, a relationship that Adam had. And so 1 Timothy 2.23, as we begin looking um, at Adam and Eve, it, it puts it pretty simply. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. All of this is a summary of day six, what, what occurred. You know, Adam was created. He was brought into this garden that God made. 
God brought all the animals before him. He named them. None of them were the right helper for him. And so God says, this isn't good. Everything else is good, but, but this Adam being alone thing isn't good. So I need to make him someone like him, of like kind. And so we get Eve. God caused Adam, as, as what we read here, he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, it says in verse 21. Then he took one of his ribs to create Eve. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So he takes one of his ribs. I wanted to dispel this, this rumor, okay? Um, I don't know if you've ever said it. I have said it before. I've heard it before. Man must have one less rib than the, you know, or, or people maybe even will get kind of funny with relationships and say, well, you know, every woman has, has their husband's rib or something like that, you know, or, or every man is missing his wife's rib. She's out there somewhere. You just got to find, I don't know if you've heard that. I have. Okay. This is, I don't know where it came from. I, I mean, I guess it came from Genesis too, but I don't know who came up with this idea that men have one less rib than women because God took Adam's rib and used it to create Eve. Um, so Adam, he was created, well, at this point in time, he was perfect. I mean, his genetic code was perfect. There was, there was no, no destruction or corruption within him because he had not come into sin yet. Death had not entered the world. And so there is no reason to believe that his offspring would have been missing a rib. You know, if he was created in the image of God, well, then God probably has a full set of ribs. And so when, when a person is born, they're born with a full set of ribs. You know, if I, if, I, if I had to get my pinky surgically removed, my child would probably still have both pinkies. You know, it, it's like we got to look at it that way. God didn't change the way that mankind was made. He just took something out of Adam to create his wife. And, and so this, you know, myth that men have one less rib than women, I mean, the problem is it, it gives observational science a leg to stand on against the Bible when we say stuff like this. You know, it really doesn't have a scriptural basis. It's just like, oh, it sounds kind of fun. You know, men have one less rib. Well, then when doctors, you know, do an x-ray and men have all their ribs, it's like, well, I guess your Bible's not true because what you're saying about it doesn't match up with what we're seeing right now. And the word doesn't say that. <laughs> Just goofy ideas about the word is, is where that comes from. And so just wanted to make that point. Men have all their, I, I'm pretty sure I have all my ribs, um, but, but Adam did lose one rib um, to create Eve. And what we see also in this right after Eve was created, we see Adam's reaction. Um, he says, uh, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is his immediate res response, and it's so interesting that Adam knew that this was God's creation like him, in the same kind as him. You know, he didn't, God didn't have to tell him, hey, Adam, this is the one, okay? You know, hey, Adam, sh she's like you. He knew right away, and he said, this, this is uh, the, the helper. This is the one that God has created for me. She is um, my, my counterpart. And he recognized that she was a part of him. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7 and 9 is what I'd like us to look at next. It says, For a man indeed 
ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for woman, but the woman for man. And so what we're gaining here is, is just an ordering of how things happened. You know, I mean, if there was ever someone to ask such a question of, you know, well, we get the which came first, the chicken or the egg. Well, some people may ask, you know, if evolution is the theory that you would prescribe to, who came first? Was it a man or a woman? Or how did, you know, how do we progress into being who we are today? Well, man came first. Adam came. He went into the garden. He named all the animals. God realized he didn't have a suitable counterpart in his kind. And so God made him one out of man. And it says that, well, we get it here in 1 Corinthians that woman was made for man, made as a helper uh, for man. She was made kind of like, well, it makes that comparison here in 1 Corinthians, how man was, was made in God's likeness for God. Woman was made in man's likeness for man, as a, as a suitable helper um, for man. And I want to make sure I, I get this right, too, that woman was created, yes, for man, yes, to be a helper, but to be a partner, to be a counterpart um, to man, and to complete God's plans for dominion and fruitful multiplication. You know, I guess what I'm saying with that is that woman is not created lesser to man because if that was the case, God wouldn't have taken her out of man. And maybe that's even the reason that he did take one of Adam's ribs apart from his side to say she is like you. She, she is not lesser than you or created, you know, way different or, or on a different plane than you. She is your partner, your helper, and, and you help each other accomplish this purpose that I've given you. You both work together to have dominion over this wor world. Um, you work together to be fruitful and multiply. You know, that can't happen without women. We Guys can't be fruitful and multiply all on their own. And so there, there is um, in, in, just an equality and a mutual need for each other as partners. And you know what? If God had created, the reason he created mankind first is because God is man. Okay, God, God is, is a masculine being. And so he created mankind in his image. And so this should dispel to the question of is God a man or is God a woman? God's a man. He created Adam in his image because that's who he is. But he knew that Adam wasn't God and he needed someone of like kind, and so he created someone like him, but not, not in the physical image of God, because God is a man. You see that? And so woman was created for man because man needed a, a wife. And so man alone was not good. But what's interesting is um, at the end of this passage, at the end of day six, when Adam and Eve were both created, when they were there living together, and uh, man and, and, and woman, he called the creation very good. And so this, this is the, you know, very good. This is the completed work. Up until that point when it was just man, it was just good. But when man and woman were together, man, it was very good. We could say this. When God's first marriage came together in the word, it was very good. Up until that point, it was just good. Marriage is very good in God's eyes. And I wanted to say this too before we move on to our next point, which is marriage. Man and woman were created by special supernatural acts of God. I think we've seen that as we've read. You know, we, we get that God 
spoke and created everything we see. He, but he had special supernatural acts. I mean, no other thing is described as being created this way, where he breathed life in through the nostrils. No other thing was created by removing a rib from its counterpart and fashioning it into what was needed. We're, we are special supernatural um, creations of God. And so moving on now to marriage and man and wife, man and woman, husband and wife coming together, we could say this, Adam and Eve are the first example of marriage. Adam and Eve are the first example of marriage. And we get some precedent in uh, verse 24 about marriage. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And so verse 24 here is the first time we are presented with the idea of uh, marriage in the word. It says a few things specifically about this. It says man leaves his parents to join his wife. Now, the word wife there indicates a marriage. It indicates a covenant relationship. And, you know, this is a topic that is important for today because the idea of marriage is under attack in our nation and, and across the world. People want to attack what marriage is meant to be. Here at the very beginning of the Bible, in just the second chapter, we get a look at God's first uh, marriage that, that he created and intended says, man leaves his parents to join his wife. Wife indicates that covenant relationship, that they are in a marriage. You know, there might not have been a ceremony like we see it today, but there was an agreement between Adam and Eve that we're in this thing together. And maybe they were in it together because they were the only two alive in the world. You know, I, I've, I know I've heard that before in like movies and things. Well, like if I was the last person in the world, well, they really were the last, the only two people in the world and they were created to be together, to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And so I don't know if they really had a choice. They were in a marriage. I mean, they were created and they were married. And that was God's plan. And so the two of them created together, married, husband and wife, Adam and Eve are the first marriage we see. And what it goes on to say, of course, leave his father and mother, join to his wife, and they shall become one. And so this phrase, they shall become one, um, it gives us an indication of what marriage is about. It's becoming one. That the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, these two different people are coming together and becoming one with each other. Um, that means two lives coming completely together into one. Physically, um, of course, we know what that means. Dominion. They were to be sharing dominion and having dominion in this partnership, in this relationship, and purpose, too. They shared all three of these things um, at the outset. They worked together to tend and keep the garden. They, they worked together to be fruitful and multiply. They worked together in everything they did. And this is the idea of marriage, is, is that we're one in our purpose, in our dominion, what we, what we have, what we rule, physically, our lives. We're in this thing together. We're shared. And I think Adam and Eve here in, in this account are really the perfect picture of that. I mean, I think Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is the exact image of what God's intention for marriage would be. We have this place, you know, the, together we have dominion over this place. We, we rule this place. We are stewards of what God's created here. We do it to the best of our abilities. We keep it as well as we can. And we're, we're all in with each other. We're one together. And we're going to accomplish God's purposes with each other. And so they are obviously one in this instance. Um, 
The woman, as we already said, was designed as a partner to help man. man. God didn't design any other creation um, or add another man, you know. That... I wish we didn't have to even talk about this, but God didn't create another man to go and help Adam. He didn't create another man in his image to be his partner and to help him accomplish what he wanted done in the world. He could have. God absolutely could have created another man, but that wasn't his plan. It, it wasn't what marriage was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be, you know, two people created the same. He wanted the partnership. He wanted the help that comes from someone of a like kind, but... Um, different qualities. And, and that's why men and women are different because God wanted different people. He wanted the helper that was created of man for man, just like how we're created by God for God. Well, the woman was created you know, of a man for man. And it's, it, there is a difference between men and women. And it's a good difference. It's a good thing that in marriage and in creation, he had both man and woman, husband and wife. And so as we talk about marriage, the plan is one man and one woman um, coming together in total union to accomplish God's work in the world. The marriage partnership uh, between man and woman, we could say this, is God's very good plan. It's God's very good plan. Because only once that relationship was established where husband and wife, Adam and Eve, came together and were in the garden, that's when he said creation is very good. It wasn't until that moment that he said it's very good. So we could say that a marriage partnership is God's very good plan. Mark 10, Jesus talked about marriage as well. Um, what he says here is, uh, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so Jesus repeats again what was set out as God's very good creation of marriage in Genesis 2. He goes on and repeats it, and he says it's supposed to be a man and a woman, male and female, Becoming one, one man and one woman joining together to become one. He says, what God joins together, let no man separate. Now, he did uh, talk about how Moses allowed man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. He says that because the people had had, they had hardened their hearts, they had a hardness in their hearts um, that they were doing this anyways. They weren't going to stop doing it. And he says, Moses allowed you to write this. But he says, that wasn't the very good plan. That wasn't the intention for marriage. That, you know, if it doesn't work out, well, we'll just divorce and go on our way. That's not God's very good plan. And so what we see from this is Jesus brings the new covenant light to the situation of marriage. And, and the divorce part of that, he says, Two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two but one. What God has joined, let no man separate. 
And so he brings it right back to the very good creation, which is exactly what Jesus does. He restores things to God's original plan. And he says, let, let no man separate that which God has joined together. And so we see this too, that the union of one man and one woman together in a marriage is God's very good plan. And the very good plan is that it does not get separated. That it is for the duration of life on earth. Marriage is supposed to be long-standing. Matthew 19, verse 9, and you'll see this on your scripture sheet, is another account of, of this same conversation. And in, this, uh, in Matthew's account, we do get an additional piece of information where he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so... Um, Adultery is the end result of divorce. You know, that, that's really what we see here is that if, if someone divorces and by man's standards, maybe they're divorced, but if they've not been separated by God, then what the word says is really you're not separated and you're, you're still in this covenant uh, before God. I mean, that's what Jesus, and I know it's not up on the PowerPoint, but it's in Matthew 19, 9, that you know, our laws and, and our definitions of marriage may mean something to us, but when you're making a commitment before God, that's a long-standing covenant. That's a long-standing commitment, and you know, it's, it's not really up to us as mankind to determine the terms of that commitment. That's, that's something done before God. And so what we see here, Jesus says the perfect, the, the very good definition of marriage is that it would be longstanding between one man, one woman. Um, and these are just a few of the scriptures that point us to that. If we wanted to give a, a biblical definition of marriage, it's in your notes there. One man united to one woman for life. That is the very good definition for marriage. And we see that right here in the word. And so um, even today, you know, as that is something that is under attack, as, as people want to redefine marriage and what it was supposed to be, and there are some who would say the Bible doesn't have anything to say about this. Well, yes, it does. My Bible is pretty clear what the definition of marriage is meant to be between Genesis 2 and, and Mark 10 and a number of other passages. We can see that God did give us a directive for what marriage is supposed to be. And so anything, we're kind of moving into an apologetic part now, we'll move through this quickly, anything that is away from or different than this definition, one man united to one woman for life, anything that deviates from that definition, we could say this is a perversion of God's plan, is a perversion of God's very good plan, and another term to give for that is a sin. It's, it's missing the mark of what God had intended. And so marriage, we've got a definition here. One man united to one woman for life. Anything that goes outside of that is, is a perversion of God's plan. It's missing the mark and it's sin. Um, so now we talk about an evolutionary view because that's kind of what we're contrasting as we go through this is here's why we have the biblical view and here's how it doesn't fit with the evolutionary view. The evolutionary view, um, the limits of mar marriage are removed and there's no longer a consistent moral standard to be held. That's what happens with the evolutionary view because it says we are just you know, glorified animals. We've just progressed to a higher level of intelligence than all the monkeys that are running around on earth. And really what, what I see is if we're just glorified animals, then we are justified in behaving like animals. Mm -hmm. 
The evolutionary view, it takes away any kind of moral code that we have, both in marriage and in violence and in every other kind of despicable behavior that goes on. The justification in an evolutionary point of view is, well, we're just animals anyway, so might as well be animals. But we're not. We, we are made in God's image, and we have his spirit breathed into us. We're not just animals. Colossians 2, verse 8 is on our scripture sheet. I believe it speaks to this as well. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. If we summed that up, beware. Anyone that is trying to get you to believe something, not according to Christ, not according to the Bible. Beware of anything that doesn't line up with what the word says is what we see in Colossians here. And let me tell you, the word is full of moral standards. It's full of, of, well, obviously we see here things about marriage. It has things to say about violence and controlling emotion and passion and all of those sorts of things. None of which animals do. And so, I mean, if we just take this at a, a glance, we can see an evolutionary view of our life and, and how we view marriage. It doesn't fit with the Bible. Do you see that tonight? That evolution and the Bible do not fit together, um, well, on a lot of things, but tonight especially, the subject of marriage. We believe that the word is our standard, as we read in Colossians 2, verse 8. Traditions of man is mentioned in there as well. Traditions of man may change, but Christ does not change. The word of God does not change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Traditions of man are going to change. It's a guarantee. We see it happening before our very eyes even where what is acceptable in man's view changes on a weekly or monthly basis, sometimes a daily basis. You know, the, the, the standard, the moral code, we could say this, even the, the definition is always changing. As we move on into the apologetics part, um, I wrote this, the desire for the indefinite. I think that is what the world is after. It is a desire for the indefinite, a lack of definition, that there is no consistent, unfaltering, unchanging definition. Because if, if we can get to a place where we can change anything we want, well, then we're never going to be challenged to, to live up to a higher code or standard. We can, if we don't like what something says, well, then we can just change it if it's not definite. And that's the problem the world, one of the problems the world has with the word is the word is definite. The word doesn't change. And so I'm sorry if it doesn't feel good or it, or it challenges you to change something, but it's still the word and it's still the truth and it still has definition for us today. And so the world doesn't like that. It doesn't like definite, unchanging standards. You know, I, I, I said this too in, in my notes. I don't know if I had included it in yours, but I thought this was good too. Definition stops the assault of sin and immorality. Definition stops the assault of sin and immorality. Because if, if there is a clearly defined point, if there is a clearly defined line that if we go beyond this, then we are in the wrong. If we go beyond this, we have lost our way and we're no longer in a, in a moral place. Well, then it's going to put a stop to going into that immoral, sinful place. You know, I thought of it like this. It's kind of like a police line. When the police set up, they make a defined place that you got to stop. Go no further or you're going to get beat down. 
Well, we might not always look at, you know, sin or immorality or things like that in those terms, but you got to stop right here or you're off God's plan. You're into perversion and you're going to get beat down. You're going to get destroyed because that's what sin does. I said it just this Sunday that the, the guidelines given in the scripture aren't given because God hates fun. They're given because he loves us and wants to protect us. And the word is that defined line where he says, stop, don't go any further. If you do this, you're outside of the plan. You're into this sin or, or into perversion and you're going to get hurt. Definition really is, is there to protect us. But the way the world would look at it is definition is there to stop or impede the endless possibilities of what I could do. You know, they look at, at, at definition as an imposition on freedom, whereas I look at definition as a protection for me. And so we have a different perspective of definition. The other thing about definition is it doesn't leave any room for compromise. Definition doesn't leave room for compromise. It says, this is it. Feelings, circumstances, I mean, this is it. This is the answer. This is the way. This is the line. And everything else is noise. Definition leaves no room for compromise. And this too, it creates an inability to adjust standards based on convenience or on power. When we have definition, we can't, we can't just change something because it's convenient. We can't just change something because, you know, I'm in charge now and I, I want to do it a different way. Definition stops that from happening because definition defines what is right. And our Bible is an absolutely defining word. It absolutely defines right from wrong. You know, I said earlier that I think there is an attack on definition. There's a desire for the indefinite. I think we see this obviously with the Bible, with our world. We also see it, I believe, with our Constitution. I mean, if, if you need proof beyond the word that people don't like definition... People have problems, some people have problems with our Constitution today. I don't like that it was written 200 years ago. It's not relevant for today. Well, people say that about the Bible too. It's not relevant for today. Yeah, you don't like that it's defined and that it's not changing because our standards have lowered. That's really the problem. It, it, it hasn't been a problem of definition until we want to change what's a standard for morality. And the word's not going to change just because there's people who want to change what our standard for morality, our moral code might be. And so my question is this, and, and this, is, this is the question I have asked, and I've had these kinds of conversations with people about, about marriage and other things before, and I always take it back to this place. You know, I believe what I believe in marriage because I have a clearly defined Bible, a word that tells me what is right. And I ask, so, so why do you believe what you believe? You know, what, where does your definition come from? What, what, is, what is the definite line that decides right and wrong for you. And you know what I found? People that don't believe the word don't have an answer. Or the answer is, well, just, you know, whatever's socially acceptable, whatever I feel, my truth. And I think, so that's not definition. That's, that's not defined because it changes all the time. Today, maybe you feel like this is wrong, but what about next week when the situation changes? A lack of definition 
causes a, a decline in morals. And you notice that where definition comes off, it never really like improves the standard. Have you ever seen that? When, when you take limits off, usually, like protective limits when you take them off, usually it doesn't make things go better. And this is the truth with morals as well. As we take the definition off, they decline. And my question is this, who sets the moral code if not God and if not his word? If we're not going to get our definition from the one unchanging, consistent source, then where does it come from? And I, you know, I, I can really only see a couple of answers. It's either the person with the highest level of influence or the person with the highest level of strength. And many times I think those are one and the same, but the problem is it goes to a person. And people change. And people are not consistent and definite all the time. But our God is. See, it's not a true standard or a true code when it comes from someone who lacks definition. And that is why we have to choose to get our morals, choose to get our definition for life from the Word of God because it alone is the unchanging source. Everything else is subject to change, but the Word of God is not. Amen? Let's close service by reading Proverbs 30, verse 5. <clears throat> Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Amen. Isn't that a good word for this day, for this hour, that as we lack definition in so many places of society, we have a word that is pure, undefiled, unchanging, and it's described as a shield, a shield that we can put our trust in. Man, tonight I put my trust in God and his word, don't you? Let's pray in closed service tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us instruction and definition on creation, how we came to be, Lord, on the history of our world, of our universe, all that you created, Lord. Thank you also for giving us definition on moral things, things like marriage, which are today um, in a place that people want to change. But Lord, your word doesn't change. And so we look to your word as our standard, both for truth and history and knowing where we come from, but also for how to behave and how to live and how to, how to have definition of what is right and wrong today. God, we look to your word for those answers that are pure, that are defined, and that are a shield for our life in this present day. Lord, your word never fails, it never changes, and I thank you that it is just as relevant today as it has ever been. Lord, we believe that and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said amen. 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 Wonderful. Well, go and be blessed.